Here at the Sociology of Everything podcast, we acknowledge the people of Ghana Yarta, whose land this episode was mainly produced on, and whose past and present elders we pay our respects to. Hi, I'm Eric Sue. And I'm Louis Everest. And we're Lou and the Sue, and this is the Sociology of Everything podcast, brought to you by UniSA. The university that's finally given us a sound studio to do some recordings in. <laughs> it has. It's super exciting. My ears are still getting used to being in the environment where all the all the noise is killed when it hits the walls. It's a bit disconcerting, actually, but yeah. it's good. Do you remember how far we've come since we've recorded our first episode? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that in my office, in my echoey little office. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And I don't know if you remember... But there was this groundskeeper that would <laughs> seemingly always turn up when we wanted to do a yeah. recording with this leaf blower, <laughs> what seemed for like hours, right? Blowing, in, you know, a innumerable number of, of leaves. And we so we had to do random pauses to our recordings. You'd hear like, you know, banging doors occasionally in the background. Mm-hmm. We had this like flimsy little mic that we mm. use. Sometimes we were too close. Sometimes we are too far away from it. We're now in a new era, aren't we? Of Things our have podcast. changed. Yeah, it was professional sound studio. Yeah. We are <laughs> admittedly yeah. bringing our own equipment, <laughs> but we're now in the second season. Amazing. of our podcast. Mm. So, Amazing, so, right? Yeah. And we have been bowled over by the number of downloads we've gotten. We really appreciated some people writing in, mm. and we're just amazed by not just the people that have listened to our podcast from here in Australia, mm. but from overseas as well. Mm. You could say we don't just simply have an international audience. We have a global <laughs> one now. <laughs> oh, that transition so forced. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So that brings us to the topic of this episode. We're going to examine how sociologists have come to theorize the phenomenon of globalization. Globalization is one of those terms that we hear all the time in our everyday lives. We hear politicians using it, oftentimes as an excuse for the things that they're doing. Mm -hmm. We see it in newspaper stories. I'm guessing some people talk about globalization just in everyday conversation, but probably not that often. You don't want to be known as that person who's just always talking about globalization, you know? <laughs> like, oh, who's that over there? It's Dennis. He loves talking about globalization. <laughs> he's the Thomas Friedman of the party. <laughs> yeah, he's like, the world is flat, guys. <laughs> but globalization isn't just this amorphous concept in the field of sociology. It's come to mean something very specific. However, that doesn't mean, though, that everyone agrees on what globalization signifies, what its significance is. And so that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at what's come to be known in sociology as the great globalization debate. (laughs) I don't know what's so great about it, but it was given that label as far as I'm aware, by the work of David Held and some of his co-authors in a book called Global Transformations. And I'll just list who those co-authors actually are because I'm not going to be repeating their names throughout the rest of this episode. I'll probably never mention them. So So David Held, Anthony McGrew, David Goldblatt, and Jonathan Perrotin 
wrote this really influential book called Global Transformations. It was published by Stanford University Press. And it tries to help us better understand how we can think of globalization, not just in more sociological terms, but in more sophisticated ones. So the great globalization debate, this was something that happened about 20 years ago at the turn of the new millennium. And it consists of a number of positions. So the first position is the perspective that's associated with the group that's known as the hyperglobalists. Who are the hyperglobalists and what do they argue? The hyperglobalist uh, theorists or journalists in this instance, like Thomas Friedman or the Japanese management consultant Kenichi Omai. Oh my! <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were going to do that. <laughs> um, and these people thought that globalization was this huge phenomenon that was reshaping the world. Yeah. That essentially people's relationships, people's interactions, business interactions, the way in which institutions and individuals interacted with one another was becoming global in scope. People weren't just talking to, working with, communicating with people who existed in their city or their country. They were doing it with people in different parts of the world. And because of that, things like countries and local institutions yeah. were slowly breaking down and becoming less important. And what was becoming more important were global institutions, yeah. Yeah. international corporations, yeah. uh, you know, global authorities like the global labor organization and things like this. Yeah. And the hyperglobalists oftentimes mention the demise of the nation state as evidence that globalization was occurring. Mm. Because if you think about the things that nation states traditionally do, like exercising a lot of influence over economic activities within a certain location, mm. the hyperglobalists said nation states are wielding less and less power over this form of activity. If you want to know who's controlling the economics in a certain place, you need yeah. to look at the global corporations that are active there. You need to look at Microsoft and mm. Tesla. <laughs> yeah. You, you don't look at the country. That I mean, just consider the media landscape here in Australia. I'm guessing, Louis, when you grew up, there were like a few channels mm -hmm. that you could watch on television mm -hmm. and your access to movies was a bit more limited. Mm-hmm. But now it's like there's almost too much mm -hmm. out there to watch. And I know you're probably not a good example of this, but like if you wanted to watch quote unquote foreign films, you could. Mm. And you don't have to necessarily go seek them out. They are readily accessible to you. Absolutely. And so the hyperglobalists would have interpreted this to mean that globalization is an ascendant force, not just here in Australia, but around the world. Mm. People more or less now operate in a global marketplace and not just a national one. Mm. And for hyperglobalists, it, there's a tendency to see this as a very positive thing, yeah. right? Because they love it. Yeah, because they think that when you do have economic activity in a global scale, it gets enhanced, it gets increased. Everyone will become a bit wealthier if you yeah. can trade not just with people inside your own country, but suddenly you can trade with people anywhere in the world. Your yeah. customer base becomes global and not local. And like Thomas Friedman refers to, you know, information's now global as well. Yeah. It's harder, say, for, you know, bad governments or local warlords or whoever to stop their populations knowing about things that are occurring in other parts of the world. And yeah. you can see how globalization and hyperglobalism became very popular after the Cold War had yeah. ended when suddenly these big divisions in the world were breaking down. And Friedman most notably 
put forward the idea of the golden straitjacket. <laughs> the jacket. The jacket. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's our best <laughs> Richie Aprile uh, impression. He was a character in The Sopranos. And he's just great, isn't he? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, the jacket. <laughs> but the golden straitjacket is a really interesting thing. And this probably actually leads us into the next position a bit because essentially what Friedman's saying is that for states to do well in this new global environment, yeah. what they have to do is they need to lean into it. They need to embrace it. They shouldn't try and continue to put up borders. They shouldn't try and tariff, you know, trading. They mm. should they shouldn't try and stop information flowing across borders. They should reduce regulation, lower taxes, make it easier for global economics to occur, and mm. as a result, there'll be more economic activity, they'll end up becoming wealthier. Yeah. To use the language of Kenichi Omai, we need to just embrace the fact that the world has become more borderless. Yeah. And not just more borderless, increasingly borderless. Yeah. But this isn't the only perspective in the great globalization debate. Numerous scholars across different fields were really skeptical of the claims being advanced by the hyperglobalists. And so there was a new position that formed in response to the hyperglobalist argument, which was advanced by the group that came to be known as the global skeptics. I think probably the work that exemplifies the global skeptic position is a book by Paul Hurst and Graham Thompson called Globalization in Question. What are some of the key elements of this work and how does this exemplify the global skeptic position? Well, essentially, it is just that. It's skepticism of some of those grand claims that were made by the hyperglobalists. Mm. So they pointed to things like this notion that there are now these multinational corporations that owe no allegiance to a particular state and actually a mm. completely global entity. And they said, if there are any of these entities, there's not very many. Yeah. Most most corporations are still predominantly taxed in a certain place. They still yeah. sort of owe their allegiance to a certain place. That's right. I mean, you think about a company like Qantas in Australia, it is very much embedded into the Australian landscape, but they'd say most corporations like this. And in fact, they'd say, sure, there definitely is more international activity when it comes to economics. Like there's definitely more global trade going on at the moment, but that's not necessarily a sign of globalization. It's a sign of internationalization. It's a sign of corporations and entities that are still embedded within particular countries in particular contexts, now trying to make money by trading with companies and entities who are in different contexts and different parts of the world. They don't become global. They just become internationally active. So from the viewpoint of the global skeptics, nation states don't go away. In fact, they're still a prominent part of the world order, of the world system. They also point out that trade in the present day may not be as open as it once was. So when hyperglobalists paint a view of the world, they paint a view of the world that is becoming increasingly borderless, increasingly global, and that this is a recent phenomenon. But the global skeptics think that that's just wrong. That's factually wrong. And that there's some evidence to just suggest that trade was a lot more open at the turn of the 19th century than it is at the end of the 20th century and presumably also as it is in the 21st century. Mm. Yeah, I mean, and that sort of comes down to the core of their argument. 
they, they suggest that borders are still an important part of the global order. Nation states are still an important part of the global order. They haven't been eviscerated like the globalization theorists said they were going to be or that was mm. happening. And in fact, in some parts of the world, borders are becoming more manifest during the period of this debate. But I think the interesting part about the global skeptics argument for me is that they go a step further and they say the discourse on globalization, the mm. idea about globalization, that golden straitjack, yeah. The jacket! <laughs> that idea is used as an excuse by governments to yeah. bring in these neoliberal policies to lower taxes, yeah. to try and reduce tariffs. Governments to say, oh, we can't protect our local industry because globalization is going to destroy it, so we can't try and do anything about it. Yeah. Uh, but they'd say that's just an excuse that governments are using. The idea of globalization is present in society and is very powerful, even if the reality of globalization yeah. isn't actually there. That's right. There's something very dangerous to subscribing to the hyper-globalist argument. Mm. Now, at this point, you might think that's it. <laughs> yeah, people who argue that globalization is happening, it's an ascendant force in society, and then you have people who are very skeptical of that claim. But that wouldn't make the great globalization debate all that great, would it? <laughs> <laughs> What makes this debate in the social sciences, I think, a really interesting one is that a third position emerged. And this position was advanced by the group of authors we mentioned earlier, by David Held and his co-authors. Held argued that we need to take a transformationalist perspective of globalization. And this actually leads us to a segment we like to call, Say What? <laughs> Where we take a look at a quote in need of further explanation. I have one in front of me, which basically captures what the transformationalist perspective is all about. Held at all right, at the heart of the transformationalist thesis is a conviction that at the dawn of a new millennium, globalization is a central driving force behind the rapid social, political, and economic changes that are reshaping modern societies and world order. What's distinctive, Louis, about the transformationalist perspective? Well, I think it's kind of interesting because there are parts of both the earlier perspectives that they seem to agree with and this quote touches upon. Firstly, transformationalists clearly think that globalization is occurring. It is a thing. They're mm. not completely skeptical of the phenomenon of globalization. That's right. It's happening. However, I think some of the key points they're trying to draw upon here is that it's not as the hyperglobalists have told us. It's not this <laughs> big homogenizing force. It's yeah. not making everything the same. It's not destroying nation states all around the world. Instead, it's transforming things. It's making things change yeah. in certain ways. And importantly, it's not doing this in the same way. It can transform different states in very different ways. It can create contradictory outcomes in different parts of the world. Yeah. Like, so, for example, when it comes to nation states and how they are organized and structured in the contemporary era, we don't simply just see a neoliberal minimal state, which authors like Friedman and Omai predict. 
I mean, they say that is one potential option because mm. they say, sure, we now live in an environment where economic relations are global in scope, mm. where cultural relations are global in scope, and nation states kind of have to respond or they're influenced by that. And one way they can do that is by putting on the golden straitjacket. The jacket! <laughs> and reducing all of their regulations and just kind of allowing the global flows of money and, and labour to occur across their borders. But yeah. I think another potential outcome is that states States could become catalytic states. And what they mean by that is that states get involved in economic activity around the world by promoting the interests of the businesses that uh, mainly reside within their own borders. Mm. So they might set up trade delegations. Yeah. They might have their ministers go overseas and try and, try and do specific free trade deals with yeah. just isolated individual states to try and promote trade in that way. Yeah. They catalyze this global economic activity, but they don't just diminish their borders. In fact, they're in some ways more involved than ever. And in fact, they say that some states might go almost the other direction from the neoliberal state. They might turn into, say, a developmental state where the state becomes one of the central promoters of economic activity and expansion. We could potentially see this in the way, the, say, the Chinese governments operated, where they have centrally owned and controlled factories, but those factories have been operated within the global mm. market. Mm -hmm. like China has become the kind of labor force and become the factory for the entire world <laughs> during periods of like globalization. But the Chinese state hasn't disappeared. Mm, <laughs> Chinese no, borders haven't disappeared. All. Yeah. So, yeah. There are also some other key features of the transformationalist perspective was distinguish it from the global skeptics and the hyper-globalists. One of them is that the transformationalists believe the debate around globalization shouldn't just revolve around economics. Because if you think about it, the hyper-globalists and the global skeptics, they're mainly talking about the financial side of globalization. To what extent are nation states able to control the economic activity that's going on within their borders? To what extent does trade operate outside of the container of the nation state? These are all very economic ways of understanding globalization as a phenomenon. Hmm. But how can we think about globalization in different terms? Well, I suppose my starting point of that is always to think about it firstly in slightly more abstract terms. Think about globalization as something influencing something else on the other, other side of the world. Now, that influence could be economic, but it could be cultural. Mm. It could be cultural content being lifted up, being uh, removed from space. It could be deterritorialized and it could land somewhere else. It could be me in Australia wanting to wear Nike shoes and dress like whoever a popular American social media <laughs> influencer is right now because I am embracing the culture <laughs> of, yeah. of American society. It I'm could being be, influenced culturally. It could be someone in Malta listening to our podcast mm. and being influenced by the ideas we're talking about. Mm, absolutely. And in fact, in some ways, this very podcast is an example of cultural globalization because yeah. unfortunately, you do Trump impersonations. <laughs> in I do such a great job. <laughs> excuse me, excuse me, Louis. Yeah. Excuse me, it's being, being very nasty. Yeah. Being very nasty, being very sad. Yeah. So if this podcast is a cultural <laughs> expression, a cultural utterance, then it's one that's not just influenced by Australian culture where it's being recorded, but influenced Louis, by maybe, a culture from across the globe. 
Louis, maybe we are getting all these downloads from from people around the world because of the Trump impression. Have you thought about that possibility? <laughs> maybe. We're, yeah, got a big tea party following. <laughs> We're going to make sociology great again. <laughs> Another unique aspect of the transformationalist argument is that they don't think it's useful to adopt a teleological view of globalization. Teleology isn't a term we regularly encounter in our everyday conversations, or maybe it might be yours. Maybe (laughs) maybe your friend Dennis, who just loves talking about globalization, also happens to talk about teleology. (laughs) What is teleology? What does it refer to? It refers to something having a designated endpoint or outcome. It's leading towards something. And if you think about a lot of uh, like political theory and philosophy, a lot of it's teleological. You know, it's like Marx thought that political revolutions were going to end in communism. That was the end state. Yeah. And a lot of the kind of globalization, uh, especially the hyper-globalization stuff, sort of has an ideal end point. You know, every state will put on the golden straight jacket. The jacket! Yeah. <laughs> By the way, <laughs> I've got to stop saying it. People are going to, like, hate this episode. <laughs> Unless uh, they are huge Sopranos fans. <laughs> and if you're a Sopranos fan, you're loving it. I'm loving sure. it. Yeah. <laughs> but, well, if part of Friedman's claim was that, you know, countries, once they embrace globalization, wouldn't go to war with one another. The world would sort of reach this sort of ideal, mm. hyper-globalized state. Whereas transformations say, no, that's not true. Globalization isn't making the same transformation for every country. There's no ideal end state. Yeah. It's just constantly making states and organizations transform and change in different often contradictory ways. There's no ideal end state. To yeah, so it might be better to think of globalization not in the singular, but in the plural. Yeah. Also contained in this account of globalization by Held and his co-authors is a way to think about the historical aspects of globalization because the hyper-globalists will have you believe that it's just this recent thing, but the transformationists emphasize that globalization actually has a very long history. And that the way globalization is expressed throughout history is actually quite distinctive depending on the era you find yourself in. And they outline four spatio-temporal dimensions that help us understand the various forms globalization can take at different points in time. What are those spatio-temporal dimensions, Louis? So they are the, uh, the increasing extensity of global networks. And that's the extent to which globalization is causing more global activities and networks to be developed. Yep. We can think of this as how interconnected the world is yeah. becoming. So let's just imagine that we have a relatively small number of nodes in a network where there's cultural and economic interchange. When you have increasing extensity, this means that more nodes are added. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's like if you've ever played the game SimCity 2000. <laughs> So let's say you have like a bilateral relationship with Pleasantville. (laughs) (laughs) If you connect with a different city, if a new road is built to say Green Acres, (laughs) the wonderful, lovely community of Green Acres, then that signals the increase of extensity of globalization. Hmm. But let's say, I don't know, a fire rages through your city an alien from outer space somehow ruins the connections, the physical connections you have <laughs> with your neighbors, mm. well, then you'd see a decrease in the extensity mm. of your networks. Mm. 
The second spatiotemporal dimension that held at all note is that there can be an increasing intensity of global interconnectedness. What does that mean? Well, if extensity is the number of connections that a person or a population has to other people or populations in different parts of the world, then intensity is how strong or intense each of those connections are. Yeah. Yeah. So if we think about it like <laughs> if I have a pen pal on the other side of the world. And well, we, let's just say how if you have a Facebook friend. Yeah, Facebook friend. And, yeah. and like what we follow each other, occasionally we like one another's things. It's not a very intense relationship. So, uh, so high extensity would be you had uh, loads of... Of connections, yeah. loads of friends yeah, yeah. on I Facebook. Can, I mean, Facebook's a great example because it is a massive increase in the extensity of your friendship group, so to speak. Yeah. But it's not necessarily an increase in the intensity because I don't see these people often, I don't talk to them. Yeah. Whereas let's say this global friend, my global Facebook friend, is someone who I actually am close with and I call them on a, on a weekly basis to catch up and see what they're up to, then that's a much more intense connection. And that's what it's referring to here. And if we think about globalization, you know, connections that say, let's say I work for a company that's yeah. based somewhere else in the world. That's a pretty intense connection because yeah. they literally control my livelihood and yeah. whether I have food on the table. Whereas if I just purchase products from a company overseas, a much less intense connection. Wouldn't it be insane if you had high extensity and high intensity uh, of your networks That'd be horrible. on Facebook. That'd be, how exhausting would that be? Imagine if you had like a thousand friends and you were like keeping active conversations oh, with 500 of them. It'd be absolutely exhausting. If I like, if, if I knew someone who was like that, I'd be like, oh my, I would, I would question really mm. what I was doing and out with this person. That's just, that's so many people to get in contact with all the time, right? All right. <laughs> the third spatiotemporal dimension that held at all introduce is the increasing velocity of global flows. The interesting thing is if we think about the speed of some of these connections now, they've actually kind of become instantaneous. Yeah. When it comes to connecting with Facebook people, pretty much the moment I hit the like on whatever it is that someone's doing, they're receiving it in real time straight away. Pretty much. So yeah. there's been a massive <laughs> speed up. If I were to send them a letter and the letter just said like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In, in response that, to your last letter. <laughs> Dear sir, in response to your last letter. <laughs> like. <laughs> Sincerely, Louis. Yeah. Uh, that would take, well, I don't know, as long as it took for that to be physically carried to the other person. Yeah. So that's increasing uh, velocity of global So at flows. different points in time, different networks have been able to have interchange at different speeds. Yeah. That's yeah. what that's yeah. pretty much trying to signify. Mm -hmm. Lastly, there's a spatiotemporal dimension that's quite a mouthful. Held et al. identify as a spatiotemporal dimension the increasing impact propensity of global interconnectedness. What the heck does that mean? This is probably the most complicated out of the group, and this refers to the impact of global events being magnified and the extent to which global events become indistinguishable from local events. Yeah. How impactful are global events and global connections? And um, <laughs> it's quite, in a funny fashion, they then come up with four different ways to describe this thing, which is already the fourth of its current set of things. <laughs> it's pretty brilliant. <laughs> but they talk about things like how much people's cost-benefit kind of uh, analysis of their decisions in life are impacted by global things as opposed to local things. They, they look at how much the institutions within a society are impacted by 
globalization. Mm. They looked at how much distribution in society is impacted by globalization. To what extent does globalization impact inequality in a certain yeah. society? And these things all sort of demonstrate the impact propensity of globalization. How significant is the impact that globalization is having in a place? So these four dimensions, depending on the level they're at, can signal different types of globalization then. So they talk about how you might have a thick type of globalization, which has high extensity, high intensity, high velocity, and high impact. But this can be distinguished from a thin globalization, which has high extensity, low intensity, low velocity, and low impact. And they also talk about other types of globalization as well. Mm. Yeah, they even come up with another four different categories that maybe we can leave to the side for now to describe the different organizational attributes that globalization might take in a certain time and at a certain place. Um, But I think one thing I always say to people when I'm going over these ideas is that yeah, it's really good way to categorize the type of globalization that's occurring. But the really the most fundamental point is just that globalization can take different shapes. It can yeah. take different forms and they provide a really interesting structure to try and describe the different forms that globalization can take. Yeah. So in a nutshell, the transformationalist understanding of globalization tries to offer a more complex account of globalization as a phenomenon. It allows different periods of globalization to be analyzed in relationship to their historical contexts, and it it tries to take account of the diverse and contradictory transformations caused by globalization. Perfect. (laughs) Why did we even bother with the the 20-odd minutes prior to that? It's because we wanted the excuse. (laughs) The jacket. Exactly. To do our best Richie April impression. If you were a fan of The Sopranos, again, this must be your favorite episode of our podcast. Uh, For everyone else, we're sorry. (laughs) All right. Well, on that note, we thank you very much for listening. We'll catch you in the next episode. The Sociology of Everything podcast is created and hosted by Eric Sue and Louis Everest. It's produced and edited by Eric Sue, with special assistance from UniSA Online and UniSA Justice Society. To learn more about studying sociology and other programs online or in person at the University of South Australia, visit unisa.edu.au where you can search for more details. The Sociology of Everything podcast is primarily recorded on the lands of the Ghana people. The hosts of the podcast would like to pay their respects to elders past, present, and emerging. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more about the podcast, visit our website at sociologypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.